Hey everybody, it's me, Josh, and for this week's SYSK Selects, I've chosen Will Computers Replace Doctors? It's an episode so dated, I still wore a Fitbit when we recorded it. No, but seriously, it is a really interesting episode, and even though we recorded it years ago, the stuff that we're talking about still quite hasn't come to fruition. So sit back and enjoy this peek into the future. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Our guest producer, Noel, is here. Yeah, Jerry needs a buffer day from her Christmas break. <laughs> you can't say that. Sure I can. No. She's at home on her buffer day Pretty in the freezing scary. cold. Uh, because we record these somewhat in advance. We are in the midst of the polar vortex. And, um, yeah. yeah, everyone's just talking about how cold it is. We're back. This is our first recording yeah. after the holidays. It's literally freezing cold out. So welcome back, buddy. Thanks. Welcome back to you, too. Even though this will be, what, like late January? <laughs> yeah. It'll be a balmy 60 think, in Atlanta. I think the end of the end of January is when this one comes out. All right. Well, Happy New Year, anyway. Happy New Year to you, too. Yeah. And Happy Holidays to you. Thanks. Um, Chuck. Yes, sir. You feeling good? You loose? You ready? I'm loose. So you see this? You've seen this before. Yeah, your Fitbit. My Fitbit. Is that buzz marketing? Not really. It's sure just it a really good example. <laughs> um, I, I, I like Fitbit. I'm not like necessarily loyal to it or anything like that. Oh, they, don't, yeah. they don't pay me money to mention you get them fights on the with podcast. It? <laughs> Sometimes I'll just be like, stop staring at me, Fitbit. Yeah. Um, but no, I like it. I'm happy with it. Um, I, I point it out, though, because it's part of this... To me, and I don't think it's over confirmation bias, it seems like there really is a growing desire among just average ordinary people to be able to track their their health, their yeah. well-being, their uh, activity, yeah. um, and to do it easily. Yeah, we have tools now that make it like that thing. Super convenient. Yeah, it's, and Fitbit's not the only one. There's like Nike Fuel Band. There's Jawbone sure. is another really good one. Yeah. There's others like um, that track uh, your galvanic response. Uh-huh. So they're able to put that together with uh, respiration and heartbeat and come up with a pretty good assessment of how many calories you're burning at any given time, yeah. which is like kind of a holy grail with this kind of thing right now. Yeah. Um, there's others that track your sleep. There's apps out there that let you um, track your mood. Um, there's sites like Quantified Self, yeah. which are basically like people trying to push wearable technology like this further into the future. Yeah. There's entire websites like sharecare.com that are dedicated to health information and health um, uh, support. Yeah, self-advocacy. Yeah, and, and there's this, uh, it seems to me, this desire to kind of say, hey, this is my health. This is my body. Yeah. I want to know more about it. You know, totally. Like I don't want to necessarily cut out doctors, but uh, I, I, I want to decide if I should go to the doctor if it's time or not, and yeah. I want to use data to do that. Yeah, I imagine uh, I frustrate a lot of doctors because I'm one of those obnoxious people that goes in and is like, "Well, here's what I think I have based on my research." There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. That is what you're an informed patient. That's true. exactly what you're supposed to do. And if you're getting on your doctor's nerves, then go see another doctor. Uh, yeah, I agree. I actually am uh, in search of a new GP right now for Be- those because reasons and others. You got on his nerves. Yeah, other reasons too. Oh, really? Cold, cold hands? No, nah, like 
poor bedside manner. Never seen yeah. the doctor like, here's my intern from uh, Emory. Yeah. Uh, which, great. You know, I love them getting experience, but I would like them both to be in there. Sure. Not just like, smell you later, and the doctor leaves. Well, that's another thing, too. It's kind of like... Um Doctor, okay, let's let's just lay it out on the table here. Yeah. What what you've just mentioned and what I was talking about, if you put it all together, the medical field physicians mm-hmm. in particular are currently in a what's the beginning of what's possibly a really pickle of a state for them. I think a transition period. Yes, but they may be transitioned right out of existence in large part. Yeah, some may for sure, depending on who you talk to. There's like this whole question now like what is the future of medicine? And it, it, more specifically, in the case of this episode that we're talking about, do human physicians factor largely into that future? Yeah. And the answer is, mm, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, depending on who you ask, like I said, um, we there's this one guy, Dr. Kent Bottles, who um, he feels that GPs might go the way of the dodo and be replaced by... Uh, diagnostic uh, computers, maybe with avatars. Then there's other people like Farhad Manju, who's a technical writer. His wife is a pathologist. Mm-hmm. He thinks, no, 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 the GPs are the ones that are going to be in business. The specialists are going to be out of business because computers are really good at specializing on one single thing, not maybe so good at a general uh, practitioner thing. Right. So there's lots of opinions out there on well, how much they'll be replaced and who might be replaced. Right, and then Ezra Klein wrote a, a column who basically, he basically said, like, no, like, we, we will still need humans. Sure. But we mainly need humans to communicate to the other humans and facilitate yeah. the, the interaction between the robots and the humans, and we already have those. They're called nurses or nurse practitioners. Yeah, but he kind of, Ezra Klein is the one that thought that a computer avatar might have a better bedside manner than a doctor. Well, let's give that one example. There's this. There was. There's an example I kept finding while we were doing research for this, and yeah. it's actually in the article on how stuff works. Um, it's uh, there was a, a kiosk, a medical kiosk, during a panel called "Man-Made Minds: Colon Living with Thinking Machines." When there's a colon in there, you know it's serious stuff. Yeah. Um, and it was at the World Science Festival in 2011, and basically this this computerized avatar. Um, interacted with a woman whose baby had diarrhea. Right. And the woman said, hey, Avatar, m- my baby has diarrhea. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. And the Avatar said, well, tell me all the symptoms and all this stuff. And the Avatar decided that the baby's diarrhea, while present, wasn't severe enough to warrant immediate medical attention. Yeah. So it went ahead and made an appointment with a human doctor for later on that week. And the mother said that she preferred the treatment by the avatar to the real-life nurses at the hospitals where she lived in New York. Yeah. Uh, so it is possible to create yeah. computers with better bedside manner than, say, your GP. Well, it's it, at the very least, it'll be consistent. And that's one of the things that I'm not poo-pooing doctors or nurses. There are many, 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 many great ones. But I've also had some pretty bad experiences in emergency rooms and with doctors and nurses. With a computer, at least, it's a consistent, you know, they're programmed to display empathy no matter what. Right. You know, they're not too busy and they're not, you know, having a bad day. Exactly. So They, they don't, yeah. you know, they don't have any prejudices against you personally or anything like that. They're a computer. They don't hate diarrhea. But humans, <laughs> humans respond to even programmed empathy, even synthetic empathy from... 
a uh, a computer. I could see that a little bit. Like I've, I've dove into the uh, gaming world enough to know that you know the realism of a of a avatar can be convincing. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you think, oh, it's a real person, but it helps to put a human face on it. You know? Yeah, exactly. Literally. Yeah. Um, they, they. I saw a reference to a study that found um, people who are being treated for anxiety disorders yeah. tended to share more about their experiences and themselves with an avatar than with a human psychiatrist. Oh, that's interesting because they're like not embarrassed to, yeah. to tell a real person. Yeah. That makes sense. I might open up more to, to a computer. Right. So so we've got that part, like bedside manner. Yeah. It is possible that we can create machines now and are creating machines now that have at least equal, if not better, bedside manner than some physicians. Yeah. Okay, so bedside manner, one of the big things that doctors bring to the table, check. Computers have that. Yeah, it's it's different now than it was in the old days. I feel like just the whole quality of personal care has gone down. It's not necessarily the doctor's fault. There's a lot of reasons to place the blame, but it's not like when you were a kid and you feel like you had your family doctor who knew you, maybe even gave birth, not gave birth gave to you. Gave birth to you. Health. You're my son. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um it just invested, like you got to stick with the same doctor if you want that kind of care, I think. Right. And there's another benefit besides bedside manner um, that comes with that that kind of care, that kind of personal care, is an awareness of your medical history. Yeah, sure. Not just that, but, oh, well, your dad died of congenital heart disorder or something yeah, yeah. like that. So you may be at higher risk of it. Totally. Just that kind of awareness has been typically lost too. Even though we have medical histories and they're in our charts and they're in our files, um, an intimate knowledge of a, a patient's um, medical history is pretty much lost in today's modern practice of medicine. Yeah, um, That's another thing that, that computers could conceivably top doctors on, um, which basically falls under the umbrella of diagnosis or diagnostics. Yeah, I mean, there's two two sides to this. There's diagnoses and treatment, and some uh, programs. A little bit of the history. This um, goes back to the 1970s at the University of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, they developed software to diagnose problems. Um, Mass General, since the 80s, has been working on uh, their DX plan, which uh, provides ranked list of diagnoses. Whereas the uh, what's the computer? The um, Watson. Watson, who who won at Jeopardy? Yeah, that's more based. Um, it looks like on treatment options than diagnosis at this point. It's, so it's they're using both. these for. Well, yeah, but they said it's not. They haven't. I don't think they want to leave it alone with diagnosis yet. No, and to do its thing. They, there's already something out there for um, diagnosis that's meant to support physicians. From what I understand, with Watson, if there is a doctor of the future, it's Watson. Yeah. Um, he has a lot of advantages over not just um, human doctors, but other artificial intelligence healthcare machines, I guess so yeah. you could clumsily call it. He has a, a knack for natural language. So let's say there's like a structured formula or formulaic type of language that the medical field is supposed to use, right? Yes. Okay. Um Health records don't always necessarily contain that language. They might contain natural language, which is really confusing for computers to take in and absorb. Yeah, it, 
you know, humans can pick up on meanings of things that r- robots and, and software cannot. Right. Like inferences and... Uh, we might be using sarcasm, although there's probably not going to be any <laughs> sarcasm in your medical records. Yeah, but like figurative language and stuff like that. Right. But computers, a language is a big part of the problem. Or, or forward. more to the point, with, with the diagnosis, patient says he feels like he has a, a hive of bees in his stomach. Yeah. Like, that might mean something to you or me, but to a computer, it's like patient swallowed a bunch of bees (laughs) or something, right? Watson has the advantage of saying, oh, okay, well, there's a sensation of bees in the stomach. There's not actually bees in the stomach, so let's figure this out. Right. Then Watson, uh, or anything that that he eventually becomes, um, will will be able to go through medical records, current medical research, um, the patient's medical history, uh, diagnostic tests that were done, blood work, um, instrument tests, and put it all together and then spit out a list of diagnoses with different confidence levels. So the one at the top is the one that Watson says is he is 98.997% sure is what's wrong with this patient. Yeah, And um, as a diagnostician, that's pretty impressive. And that's using all the available data that's that's available also to human physicians, but they simply yeah. don't have the time to to take it all in. Yeah, I think uh, some research said that 80% of doctors spend less than five hours a week reading medical journals. A month. A month? Yeah. Yeah, so that's these things can read thousands in seconds, so it's it's sort of a matter of of efficiency, really. And like if doctors don't have time to read all this stuff... I know we we looked into this one uh, sort of a savant diagnoser. Is that a word? I don't know. Diagnostician? I, diagnostician, yeah. <laughs> uh, Dr. Uh, Dollywall in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. He's sort of legendary for diagnosing things to the point where he does it on stage as almost like a parlor <laughs> trick. I would love to see it. I thing. would too. They give him uh, 45 minutes and, and a, a bunch of uh, symptoms basically, like really confusing because they, they're trying to stump him. Right. And generally, he comes out on top, uh, but he even uses a program, a diagnostic program called Isabel. Right. That's the one I said earlier that's already here. Yeah. So doctors are using these to help themselves out, but he says that he's never had Isabel offer a diagnosis that he has missed. Right. But he's like the the dude, though. Yeah. And he also admits it. He's like, the, like I'm a freak of nature. Right. Go ahead. Quiz me. Exactly. Yeah. He also reads like case histories, like for fun, that kind of stuff. He's not, he really puts he's not a normal physician. He's a complete and total outlier. Yeah. Um, if he were, if every physician were like this guy, then there, there probably wouldn't be this conversation going on right now. Yeah, you're right. But most physicians aren't. And it's not just with current medical research that they're just not aware of because they haven't had time to pick up the lancet the last few months. Yeah. But it's also their training, too. Like if a doctor's in practice for 20 years, the brain and the human brain tends to create habits because it likes to expend as little energy as possible. It's, it's trying to be as efficient as possible. And I think the same thing happens with medical practice. You're trained, you understand, you come out of uh, medical school with a lot of book learning, and then you put it to practice and you kind of find your niche. And along the way, you forget a lot of the stuff that oh, you yeah. haven't done in 20 years or haven't learned about in 20 years. So it's not just current stuff, it's old stuff too. And if you feed the physician's desk reference into Watson or one of his, his compatriots, yeah. like 
all of that knowledge can be quickly indexed and researched to, to try to spit out a, a more accurate diagnosis. Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. It's like a partnering up with computers, it not is, necessarily replacing. But doctors. what they're doing with Watson is is very much moving toward replacing yeah. doctors in that sense. Well, here's a scary stat: um, one in five diagnoses in the United States are incorrect or incomplete. One in five, and a lot of times it's not that the doctor's a jerk or not any good, but like you said, they just maybe haven't seen these cases that were written about in some obscure medical journal that the computer has scanned and indexed. Right. You know? And Dollywall, Dr. Dollywall himself, that freak diagnostician. Dollywood? Yeah, pretty close, <laughs> which is a wonderful place, by the way. I know you love Dollywood. Um, Dr. Dollywall uh, himself says a lot, even with me, a lot of it is intuition. Yeah. And intuition can be wrong. That's a criticism, though, of computers as doctors. They lack intuition. Like, there's kind of even a larger, even larger than this computers replacing doctors conversation going on. It's a, a kind of a, a conversation or a debate over whether intuition or data yeah. trumps one or the other. Like, well, wh which one is the right way to go? Yeah, uh, this one stat, too, it says, according to an expert, I'm not sure what that means. It sounds hinky. But they said only 20% of the knowledge uh, physicians use to diagnose is evidence-based. So that means 80% is intuition. Yeah, which which also jibes and dovetails with that one in five yeah. being wrong. I mean, it, Or one in five being right. I, I like the idea of intuition to a certain degree for sure. Yeah. But there's also got to be like data backing it up. Sure, right. You know? So in your perfect world, then it sounds like we still have physicians, but they go back and double-check themselves using a program. Yeah, but I, I could also be uh, down with um, simple, uh, what, is it, what do they call it in here? Um, Something-based diseases. <laughs> Rules-based chronic diseases. Yeah, like minor things that are pretty easy to diagnose. Well, they're and treat. not even necessarily minor. We just understand them so fully well, yeah, that we say type two diabetes is going to behave and present itself like this. Yeah, but I wouldn't mind going like it seems like once a year I get like an upper respiratory infection. It's been mm -hmm. three or four years in a row, mm -hmm. and I know what the treatment is. I know how it feels. It'd be great to go into a machine and have them take some stats and blow into it and hear my wheezing and give me a a uh, steroid shot and right. a Z-Pack and a breathing treatment and send me on my way. Right. that's and always what clears it up. Would you care if it was a robot no. that gave you that shot? Or? Not at all. Yeah. Um, but I definitely would want more personal care if it was something. What if it was a robot with a nice avatar? <laughs> a sexy avatar? <laughs> Maybe. Or just a friendly one. Yeah. That was a little, little, a little, it would touch your forearm here or there. Yeah. Well, that might be a little creepy. Oh, really? Yeah. If like, it was an old-timey doctor who, like, gave you some epicac if you had diarrhea and right. just sent you on your way. Right. Drink a Coke. But it wouldn't send you on your way. It'd give you epicac, and then it wouldn't let go of your forearm. Yeah. And it's so strong. Well, <laughs> surgical robots, that's a, that's a thing. I mean, we're kidding around, but they've been I performing... kidding around. <laughs> they've been performing robotic surgery since the early 80s. Yeah. Um, Doctor-assisted uh, until 2010 when they were in Montreal. They performed the first fully robotic surgeries... Uh, when they removed a prostate with a fully robotic uh, surgeon and a fully robotic uh, anesthesiologist. 
Dr. McSleepy. Dr. McSleepy. Yeah, and the, the and that's the real name. The robot surgeon was Da Vinci, which is like the basically gold standard for robotic surgical or surgical robots. Yeah, they had uh, in 2013 350,000 uh, robotic surgeries performed in the U.S. So it's it's big. It is, and um, but the Da Vinci is a doctor, basically sitting in a little uh, it looks like a an arcade game. Yeah, and using. Um, robotic arms to mimic uh, his or her movements on more microscopic levels. Right. So the robot has more precise movements and yeah. can make smaller movements um, than the doctor. It's tel- it's in, What's the opposite of telescoping? Like going downward in scale. Whatever that is, it's yeah. taking the <laughs> movements of the doctor and reducing them in scale. Let's call it reverse telescoping. Reverse telescoping those movements, um, which is a pretty awesome achievement in and of itself. The doctor's being fed 3D um, graphics of what the robot is seeing. Yeah. Uh, and just kind of working from there. Uh, what we're moving towards, apparently, is fully roboticized surgeries. I was talking to Joe McCormick from Forward Thinking. Yeah. And he was saying that um, there was there's something called the Raven 4, I believe. Uh, and basically, you just say... This is going to be a gallbladder surgery on a six foot, six male age, you know, whatever. And here's his, here's the CAT scan of his abdomen. Yeah. Um, so go remove his gallbladder. And you press enter, and the thing goes in there and like removes the guy's gallbladder and sews him up. Yeah. That's fully robotic, like fully autonomous robotic surgery. It's and like you press a like, button and it does it. You're not actually controlling a machine that does it. Exactly. Yeah. The machine's doing it at your behest, but you're not controlling it. Yeah. Wow. Um, and we're right on the cusp of that. And apparently it's already happening. Uh, yeah, but there are some issues. Um, yeah. I looked into it and found that a lot of uh, injury reporting and robotic surgery is um, n- not being reported. It's, it's substandard. And uh, this woman, Sheena Wilson, had robotic surgery for a hysterectomy uh, in 2013. And apparently this... Uh, intuitive surgical system had there had been a bunch of injuries uh, that she didn't know about and she had her rectum burned oh. badly oh. and said if I would have known that this uh, system had these issues I would not have elected to take part in it so there's a lot of underreporting. reporting um, the FDA um, they have no authority to, to force a doctor to do this and apparently there's every reason and every link in the chain not to report these things. Yeah. You know? And the FDA not enforcing this kind of thing, not enforcing reporting is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, it, the thing is, things like that happen and there's under-reporting um, with human surgi- surgeons as well. Oh, yeah, sure. Not just robotic. It's like overall, apparently, surgical injury and accident reporting is not compulsory. Yeah, and here, here's a few points, though, counterpoints, I guess, is... One, it's not always the robotic component of the surgery that was the cause. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, two, a lot of times they say they don't know about this until like a lawsuit is filed. So it could be weeks or months later. What, the physician doesn't know about it or the, the patient? The FDA might not oh, get a report on it. And like six months later, you file a lawsuit and that's right. how it comes to light. Um, but the FDA is definitely concerned and are supposedly working to improve this fast. Very concerned. They're very concerned. Uh, and another problem, too, uh, in that same article, a lot of these uh, robotic surgical systems 
you still have to have the correct amount of training and uh, the feeling of some experts is that, um, or at least this one guy, Enrico Benedetti, he's a head of surgery at the University of Illinois, Chicago, uh-huh. says a lot of it just comes back to training. These Some of these doctors aren't getting adequately trained in these machines enough to perform the surgery. Yeah. Like, so what happens old. when I do this? Right. <laughs> oh, that happens. It's not good. I've got another alarming stat for you, too. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, before that... Let's do a message break real quick. Stuff you should know. Okay, tell me your alarming stat. All right, uh, Johns Hopkins did a study that found uh, as many as 40,000 patients die in intensive care each, each year in the U.S. due to misdiagnosis. 40,000. Man. And um, another study found that system-related factors like uh, lack of teamwork and communication or just poor processes were involved in 65% of diagnostic error and cognitive uh, factors in 75% with premature closure is the most common, which is basically just sticking to that initial diagnosis and not being open-minded to other, like, second opinions. Yeah, so there's this thing called anchoring bias, that um, was in that New York Times article yeah, with yeah. Dr. Dollarwall, the guy who created this program that's now around to support diagnostics where a physician will say, I think it's this, but let me put in the symptoms and ask Isabel, yeah. um, which is the name of the program. And it's named after the guy who created the program's daughter. Oh, man, that story is rough. Yeah, when she was three, took her to the hospital, and the doctor said, well, she has chicken pox. And she did indeed have chicken pox, but that's all they looked at. Yeah. They completely missed a pretty nasty case of necrotizing fasciitis, yeah. which we've talked about before, oh, yeah. flesh-eating bacteria, and um, she almost died from it. It was it was disfigured from it as a result. Yeah. So that her father, who is a money manager, said, I'm going to take whatever computer programming skills I have and put it toward this program, Isabel, which is meant to say, yes, you're right with this diagnosis. I agree with you. Or have you considered these other diagnoses? Yeah. And he said, like, had Isabel been around and his daughter's doctors consulted it, they would not have missed the necrotizing fasciitis. Well, it makes sense. Um, as an assist, you know, um, there's this company called Lifecom that said in clinical trials that if you use a medical diagnostic program as an assist, uh, those engines were 91% accurate without using exams or imaging or labs even. So, really, just symptoms? Yeah. That's crazy. That's really, really, really good. Yeah. Like, that's an A. <laughs> that's an A. That's a, a low A. It's still an A. But as an assistant, I think it's, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Don't you think? Oh, yeah, I think so. I, I don't know why. I, I All I can think of is possibly worrying about feeding the beast that will take your job. Sure. Or just having too much of a caseload to take the time to double-check your work on a computer yeah. would be the only reasons why doctors aren't using that. Well, the the smartphone is becoming a a potential uh, self-diagnoser. There's all these cool things on the horizon uh, that you can use your your phone for. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's one called AliveCore, which you can take your own ECG test. Yeah. And potentially, for the cost of getting one ECG in a hospital, you could send a year's worth of daily ECGs you took yourself to your doctor. Right. 
And then you carry all that info and all of your other medical info from all of your apps that will eventually be integrated into one or two apps that will probably come preloaded on your iPhone in the next couple of years. Yeah. And you've got your medical history right there. Yeah. And I mean, most of these require like a little clip on like um, something called cell scope. That's like you clip it onto your little uh, camera lens, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, what are the little magnifiers with the lights that doctors use to look in your ears and eyes? Uh, yeah. It looks like one of those uh-huh. clipped onto your, your iPhone. And it produces, uh, you can do imaging for skin moles and rashes and ear infections. Uh, they have one called iNetra that you could potentially give your own eyes, uh, get your own like glasses prescription done. That's neat. And then you just, just order it phone. online. You just order upload the information to some website and they send yeah. you your glasses. Uh, and then there's one called Adamant uh, that smells your breath. It smells gases in your breath. Yeah. And it could detect like lung cancer even. Yeah. Apparently you have real metabolic changes to the smell of your breath. Oh, yeah. When you have different types of cancer, not just lung. Um, like bees can detect breast cancer. Um, if you breathe into like this uh, special glass sphere with bees around it, uh-huh. they can be trained to detect lung cancer, and they come back with the correct results a lot of the time. Wow! So a lot of these are on the horizon. They're not like in heavy rotation yet. No, but but it's pretty neat. All of them reveal this idea that no one cares about your particular health and well-being more than you, unless you're one of those dudes who doesn't really care. Than your your wife does, yeah, or your mom, case. you yeah. know. <laughs> Emily probably cares more about me than me. Right, but there's there the the point is the doctor, the insurance company, the the um, hospital. Yeah. While they're all in the field, because they do care about your health, of course, they can't possibly care about it more than you or your loved one does. Yeah. So the idea of giving you the ability to keep all of that information yourself and easily hand it over to them. Or potentially down the road, a computer version of them. Yeah, I can't think of any any better revolution in medicine right now than that. Agreed. I think it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I think we're going to live into the triple digits, buddy. Yeah, and there, I think there will always be a need for doctors and nurses. I don't think anyone will be wholly replaced, but uh, a little robot assist, eh? Yeah, okay. Not bad. Let me make one more point. All right. There's so you've heard of genomics. Yes. There's also this thing called protonomics, uh-huh. which is basically your protein version of your your, geno- your genome. Yeah. And it's all of the proteins in your body that you have, that you're manufacturing, that you're losing, and all the changes and fluctuations in them. Uh-huh. And the idea is that you can get a full workup of your protonome and your genome. And eventually, you can add that to your medical history as well, what your EKG reading's been over the past year, um, any weight you may have gained or lost or anything like that, uh, what your breath smells like metabolically speaking, and not only have your current state of health, but personalized your version of that, personalized down to your genes and proteins in your body, so a treatment could be specifically tailored to you. Wow. That's going to be really tough for a human physician to to do that on their own. To top that? Yeah. Be, the the amount of data available already is overwhelming human doctors. Yeah. When you add this other kind of stuff on it, it's just pulling away from them more and more. Yeah, and medical record keeping is uh, – I know there's been issues with that and digitizing that and keeping up with medical records. And if you could be your self-advocate and keep up with your own medical records, right. it might be kind of nice. Yeah. So I, I feel like we answered the question. Which is? 
Yes. No more doctors? <laughs> I, I don't know. I think in in the future, I will always have humans to interact between us, Yeah. I think. Because we're always going to want somebody to yell at or be like, what is this robot doing? Yeah. Or can you help me? This robot just gave me some Ipecac and won't let go of my arm. Or it burned my rectum. Yes. We're always going to need humans. It's just, I don't know, will we need physicians? And if we do, will they be super specialized, like just the Supreme Court of Physicians? Yeah. Who knows? It's pretty exciting. But we will see this change one way or another in the next 15 years under my prediction. Totes. It's happening. Yeah. Okay. Good one, Chuck. Yeah, man. Uh, if you kick off the new year. Yeah, really. If you want to uh, learn more about uh, computers possibly replacing doctors, you can type those words into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said uh, search bar, that means it's time for a message break. Stuff you should know. Okay, so, so what do we have? Uh, listener mail time? Yeah. Uh, I have one called, uh, I'm going to call it Fight Club. Okay. Hey guys, just finished the podcast on deep refrigerating. Uh, I think I'll keep my Energy Star certified uh, fridge. Thanks very much. But Josh did mention something about eating weeds and asked a somewhat rhetorical question. What are weeds anyway? Just plants we say are bad. It reminded me of some today's common, uh, some that some of today's common noxious weeds how they got their reputation. Not so long ago, lawns were perfect blends of Bermuda rye and Kentucky bluegrass. They also included many types of clover, dandelion, and other, quote, weeds. In fact, many seed mixtures specifically included white clover, as it makes an excellent cover in soils where more common grasses won't grow. In steps the Scott Fertilizer Company. Post-World War II America, housing tracks were popping up all over the U.S. and new suburbia, and Scott was encouraging returning GIs to take pride in their new lawns and to buy their products to do so and to wear extremely high-waisted pants <laughs> that's right they produce fertilizers uh, weed killers and other lawn care products some of which had a curious side effect killing many leafy greens that came up to the point uh, that were not considered weeds at the time including white clover instead of reformulating what they did was what any red-blooded american corporation would do they redefined what was a weed white clover made that list as the dandelions when in fact both are still in use today in cooking and medicines would you call that a noxious weed so uh, thanks for that, guys, and uh, thanks for all the knowledge I've learned, and have a great 2014. And that is from Robert Paulson. Oh, yeah, Robert Paulson. He's a, he's a sharp dude. That's why I called it Fight Club. Remember that? Oh, yeah. I think I made a joke to him about that once on Twitter, and he never responded. So. Yeah, he's, he writes in a lot. Now, every time I see his name, I think, and his name is Robert Paulson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot, Robert Paulson. We appreciate you. If you're ever shot in the head in the commission of a robbery, we will dispose of your body. Yes. Um, if you want to get in touch with me and Chuck and you have a name that you would like us to poke fun at, bring it on. Uh, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can post your name on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then, of course... Go visit our website. Make it your homepage. It's the coolest place on the web. It's StuffYouShouldKnow.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Listener.